Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was like bang, 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 bang. Like eight to ten rounds of what sounded like fireworks. Double shooting in East Vancouver, the barrage of gunfire that shook residents awake and what may be behind the attack. Plus, it would be worse in the fall and the winter. There is now flu and RSV and COVID. They're, they're all going to come around. BC sees an uptick in COVID cases, how the province is preparing for the fall surge and what its immunization campaign will look like. And then... And they go really fast and you can't hear them. And when they come up behind you, it's like a shock. Curbing the need for speed, the motion heading to New Westminster Council to slow down e-scooters and e-bikes on sidewalks. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Residents of an East Vancouver neighborhood are shaken after shots were fired overnight this weekend. By the time first responders arrived at the scene, two men had to be rushed to hospital, one with critical injuries and the other in stable condition. Catherine Urquhart now with more on what may be behind the violence. Late Saturday night, near Victoria Drive in East 28th, residents were jolted awake by the sound of gunfire. It went like rounds. It was like bang, 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 like eight to ten rounds of what sounded like fireworks. I just heard gunshots. Like it wasn't like one gunshot, it was like a couple of them, and that made me scared. After police flooded the scene, they located one bleeding man up the street near the 7-Eleven. Blood was everywhere, Two trails of splatter led back to the house where the shooting happened, and a second shooting victim was discovered. Sources say it was just before midnight when two men arrived at the house. Soon after, both of them were shot. It's believed by somebody living in the basement suite. It's also believed the two victims are well known to police. Intelligence sources say the shootings are likely tied to the Lower Mainland gang drug distribution. VPD isn't confirming that, but in a press release said they believe the victims know the suspect. For the family who lives upstairs and for neighbours, the shootings are deeply concerning. It is quite scary because I'm a little naive. I like to think that people don't have guns, that they don't need to protect themselves like Americans, but this is really real, that people do have guns. The incident comes on the heels of a report for BC's Public Safety Ministry on the effectiveness of BC's anti-gang agency. That report, obtained by Post Media, says the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit is not effective in dealing with gang violence and drug enforcement. As for the latest shooting, the suspect remains at large. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. 
One man suffered serious life-threatening injuries in a shooting in Smithers. It happened on Thursday outside a residence in the 4,000 block of Highway 16. Smithers RCMP had responded to a report of a firearm being discharged. The 44-year-old man was taken to hospital. The BC RCMP North District Major Crime Unit is now assisting with the investigation. Just in time for fall, COVID-19 cases are spiking in this province. Cases started rising at the beginning of August and have continued creeping up. As Grace Key reports, guidelines from health officials about how to stay healthy this season are on the way. I had a really sore throat, a lot of like head cold symptoms, a splitting headache, and I just felt super weak and I thought... Oh no, I'd better take a test. Defense lawyer Kyla Lee has tested positive for COVID four times since the outbreak began. The first time, she was a long hauler. It reminds me a lot of the first time, but I don't have any of the loss of taste or loss of sense of smell that I did the first time. And um, I don't have any of the sort of increased heart rate and shortness of breath symptoms that I had the second time. So it's different each time, but it's definitely not pleasant. Whatever variant I have right now is not a fun one to have. BC is seeing an increase in COVID-19 numbers. 133 people tested positive for COVID in the week ending on August 12th. That more than tripled to 447 cases in the week ending September 2nd. Respiratory viruses aren't going to go away. Uh, I mean, the flu pandemic was in 1918 and we're still giving shots for flu. So I think for COVID, we need to think of this as, as part of the background, part of endemic respiratory viruses, and it's not going to go away. It'll be worse in the fall and the winter. There is now flu and RSV and COVID. They're, they're all going to come around, and we need, to, we need to pay attention. The province is preparing to roll out its immunization campaign this month with mask mandates in health care facilities under review. I expect, and I, Dr. Henry will be looking at this question with respect to um, um, the wearing of masks, in, uh, in healthcare facilities that we'll, we'll see a look at that. And I, I would expect um, they're reviewing the evidence right now. People are getting further away from their last vaccination. And the benefit of vaccination is uh, wearing off. And the new vaccine, the XBB vaccine, is unfortunately not yet available in Canada. And for those who are 60 and over, Dr. Conway says there is also a new RSV shot available right now. You can speak to your health care provider to see if you're eligible. Grace Key, Global News. And the rising numbers clearly already putting a strain on BC hospitals. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on that, Keith. Yeah, last week or so we showed health ministry statistics that show there's an unusually high number of people in hospital right now. Usually this is the low season, but that's not the case. There are about 700 more than should be in hospital, largely attributable to a really rapidly rising population and an aging population. But COVID is putting people in hospital at higher numbers than before. And you're going to see the dramatic impact between COVID hospitals, only COVID patients only go to certain hospitals, and those that are not COVID hospitals when it comes to vacant beds in terms of base beds. Here's the stats of the health authority right now. doesn't include PHSA. Uh, it, so you see the Fraser, Vancouver Coastal, Interior and North, largely the same, almost 100% occupancy rate. The number of vacant beds are in some cases single digits. doesn't have Vancouver Island on there. I left that off, unfortunately, but that's about 20, cases, 20 open beds there. Compare that to the bottom line there. Those are the non-COVID hospitals. They've got a much lower occupancy rate, about 91%, 305 open beds there, compared to relatively fewer beds in the major hospitals, in the major health authorities.
stories because COVID is crowding out an already crowded picture. We're going to continue to see this throughout. We're going to be tracking this throughout the fall and winter. And as Dr. Conway just pointed out in Grace's pack, we are heading to respiratory illness season. Again, look for a real ramped up uh, effort to educate people on the need to be vaccinated on three fronts. These COVID booster shots, relatively fewer people have COVID booster than have the first and second doses. Second is the new vaccine, particularly for older people for the RSV uh, respiratory illness. And third, the regular flu shots. So three vaccines coming at you this fall, you're going to be encouraged to take them because if not, particularly older people and with immune compromised situations, those hospital numbers will become even tighter and beds will become even scarcer. For Thank you, Keith. The federal government is apologizing to Williams Lake First Nation for historical wrongs. To the extent the, the word sorry matters, I, I will uh, personally, and, uh, as in my role as Minister of Crown and Indigenous Relations, apologize um, profusely for what has happened. Crown Indige Indigenous Relations Minister Gary Ananda Sangari made his comments on the First Nation to Chief Willie Sellers. The minister and chief say a settlement agreement has been reached to resolve the Williams Lake First Nation village site-specific claim, which gives the nation the option to acquire up to 1,400 acres of land to add to its reserve. We took the apology with grace. We're thankful... And we realize that we have to acknowledge the wrong that the Canadian government did to the Williams Lake First Nation. No, it's not about critiquing in these moments. We need to hold them accountable, but we also have to acknowledge the progress. No, they are here. The Prime Minister was here. Our provincial government was here. And they're standing beside us and we'll hold them up. We'll remind them that there is still a lot of work to do. Last week, the Williams Lake First Nation assumed ownership of the grounds of the former St. Joseph's Mission Residential School. The First Nation and provincial government bought the property for $1.2 million, with $849,000 coming from the province. Lineups were long at a Surrey Goudoir today as members of the local Sikh community cast ballots in a controversial vote that calls for an independent Khalistan state in India. As Kamal Karamali reports, the run-up to this event was already marred by a deadly shooting and possible legal action after the Surrey School Board refused to allow the vote to be held at a Newton High School. It's the day tens of thousands from BC's sick community have been waiting for. Very important. An unofficial vote for an independent sick nation in northern India called Khalistan. It feels really good seeing that there's a lot of people here. Long lineups. It's been two hours now. The wait including food and drinks and a hope at serving up something more. These are the people who are speaking with the vote. Their IDs. This is sick here. They are sick. And their religious backgrounds checked. All of it leading up to this tent where members of the Sikh community can vote for an independent state. We feel like we should have our rights. This event a peaceful one, but the lead up <laughs> marred in violence and controversy. Hardeep Singh Nijjar, a vocal advocate for the vote, gunned down in mid-June. The Gurdwara president was wanted in India. So what we are asking Canada, which they have already agreed 
not specifically in Niger's case, that there is a direct foreign interference. And just days before the Surrey School District canceled the vote at a local high school after concerns of posters showcasing a gun. Because a pencil is destroying the muzzle of an AK-47, the school has said that that is promoting violence. Sunday's event now taking place at the Guru Nanak Gurdwara, the fourth referendum in Canada with the others in Ontario and one of multiple around the world. London, Geneva, in several cities in Italy. The non-binding vote not recognized by any government body since only one side of the political debate is organizing the so-called referendum. But the guaranteed outcome largely in favor of an independent Sikh nation, more of a statement. So this is a very forceful referendum which is going to open the doors and which is going to force uh, India to take a stance whether the indigenous people of Punjab have a right to vote or not. The global count not set to be completed until 2025 with the hope for a final vote in Punjab. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Coming up, slowing down e-scooters, the growing number of interactions on new Westminster sidewalks, and the proposal to limit just how fast e-scooters and e-bikes can go. And then later, the Labrador retriever dog named Fish on the road to recovery, his journey from starving pup to being adoption ready. E-scooters are a popular way to travel in BC's urban areas and in a hilly city like New Westminster, the power boost is often warranted, but some residents say riders are going way too fast on sidewalks. As Travis Prasad reports, a new West City councillor is looking to change that. E-scooters are gaining popularity quickly. The average one hitting speeds of 30 kilometers an hour to zip through bike lanes, but also sidewalks, turning heads for the wrong reasons. The safety of pedestrians is not being... It's not being taken as seriously as it should be. When it comes to e-scooters and e-bikes, pedestrian advocates say on the sidewalks of New West... It's kind of like the Wild West. There's no rules, there's no regulations, and they can drive on the street, they can drive on the sidewalk, they don't have to stop at red lights, and they don't have to let you know they're coming. It's very disconcerting. We all know roads have speed limits, so what about controlling speeds on sidewalks? A lot of seniors have been asking me to look at some measures that we could implement in the city to, to slow down that traffic. City Councillor Daniel Fontaine is proposing a bylaw that would set speed limits for motorized vehicles on sidewalks. Many of our streets are 30 kilometers an hour. We're posting that. We're sending a message. We want people to slow down on our main streets. Ironically, if you're riding an e-scooter on the sidewalk, there, there is no speed limit. You can go as fast as you want. If you see them coming, you can move out of the way. But sometimes they come up behind you and it feels like an accident waiting to happen, especially if you're going to turn into a store, you'll basically you'll get hit for sure. Banning motorized vehicles from sidewalks is not realistic, according to Fontaine, because the city doesn't have a good enough network of bike lanes. It's unclear what the speed limit and penalties would be. Some people will tell you the solution is enforcement. Some people will tell you the solution is education. It's very difficult to change people's behavior. Fontaine says the first step is getting a rule in place. We need to have not only the bylaw, but I would like to see the enforcement plan that's going to come with the bylaw. Because if, if they don't come together, to me, it, it will make people even more cynical about our local government and the ability for us to actually enforce these things. The motion will be presented to council on Monday. Travis Prasad, Global News.
One person was critically injured after a vehicle crashed into a busy restaurant in downtown Vancouver. On Saturday night, around 7.30, the driver of a Jaguar sedan lost control and slammed into the shopfront of Pacifico Pizzeria and Ristorante on Smythe Street near Burrard. Emergency responders say two people were transported to hospital, one in critical condition and the other in stable condition. The owner of the restaurant, who wasn't there when it happened, says a server behind the glass, behind the bar rather, was also hit with glass. Here's what he says he was told by police. The driver of this car uh, came down the alley there, struck a cyclist in the cycling lane, evidently panicked, hit the gas instead of the brake. Apparently this is what he told the police, and came right through and uh, onto the sidewalk and right through the doors. An engineer was brought in to confirm if the integrity of the structure has been compromised. Coming up, still searching for survivors, racing to send aid to remote areas of Morocco after a powerful quake struck the region. Plus, one BC woman shares her first-hand experience there as disaster hit. And later, hot temperatures returning to the Okanagan, the tempered concerns despite a spike in fire activity. Morocco now and two days after a powerful 6.8 magnitude earthquake rocked the country more than 2100 people are confirmed dead so far in the towns and villages that are accessible residents are mourning the dead and pleading for more help Redmond Shannon reports combing through ruins with bare hands in the hope of finding survivors all too often those hopes are dashed Many people stood little chance inside the typical brick houses of the Atlas Mountains. I lost two of my daughters, says this man. May God have mercy on them. They were sleeping on the first floor and the ceiling fell on them. Those injured are carrying mental scars that may never heal. About 31 people died here, says this man. We used all our efforts to rescue people. We did what we could, but there were many we could not help. Accounts like these are replicated across the earthquake zone. As the Moroccan army clears blocked mountain routes, aid is slowly starting to reach remote villages. In the tourist hub of Marrakesh, many people are facing a third night of sleeping out in the open. An hour away, survivors of all ages cram into simple tents. Many are echoing the early pleas of survivors of February's earthquake in Turkey and Syria. People are suffering and aid is late, says this man. The situation is dire. Many Moroccans across the country are donating money and blood. We saw on the news that they need donation for blood and I didn't even think twice, we just run to here. Fellow citizens doing what they can as the extent of this disaster slowly becomes clear. Redmond Shannon, Global News, London. And a Nelson, B.C. resident happened to be on vacation in Marrakesh when the deadly tremor hit the region. Fiona Richards said she was sitting in a rented home having a drink on Friday night 
when the ground and walls started to shake. She says she was fortunate the building her group was staying in is still standing, albeit with some significant cracks. Now she's concerned about the Marrakesh citizens she's met who are extremely dependent on tourism and are worried the, the quake has dried up a key revenue source that will help them begin to rebuild. Suddenly, the walls started to shake violently. There was no run-up to it. It just, we were slammed with a huge shaker. And the, it felt like there was a dragon under the floor. The floor felt like it was moving. The walls, everything was shaking. We, we ran under a doorway because that's what we've been told to do in BC when there's an earthquake. And we huddled under the doorway and we were terrified. What we were seeing was uh, smaller patches of terrible destruction, but then life going on in between that. And these people are so wonderful and they, they need the tourism, they need the business. In Ukraine, a Canadian aid worker has been killed in a Russian missile attack near Bakhmut. Global Affairs Canada is confirming the death, but not the man's identity. But the Road to Relief Aid Group, which helps remove wounded civilians from frontline areas, says Anthony Innat, a Canadian man, died in a Russian attack on a vehicle driving towards Bakhmut. Spain's government also confirmed one of its citizens was also killed. The group says the vehicle they were in suffered a direct hit from Russian shelling on Saturday while traveling to Bakhmut and were trapped inside when it flipped and caught fire. Coming up, a gift of song and dance. South African firefighters sharing a special performance for BC wildfire crews. The uplifting ceremony before they head north to continue the firefight. With fall just one week away, temperatures in the Okanagan are feeling more like the middle of summer, and that's causing a spike in fire activity. Victoria Famia now with more on those tempered concerns. With summer temperatures kicking back up in the Okanagan, fire crews are staying vigilant. With this weather that we're seeing, we are seeing that increase in activity in a majority of the fires throughout the Kamloops Fire Centre. A lot of this activity is happening within the fire perimeters on some of our larger incidents, um, specifically incidents with that being held or under control status. The good news, since the increased fire activity is within the perimeter, it's not expected to spread. When there's pockets of unburnt fuel well within the fire perimeter, those are going to be left to burn on their own as that fuel is removed. It's well within the black, so there's no likely chance of that spreading beyond those predetermined or established boundaries. However, planned ignitions are continuing on the McDougall Creek wildfire. Well, September 9th, uh, uh, crews conducted a small-scale hand ignition in the Hidden Creek area to remove uh, any uh, unburned fuel. Uh, there is no uh, planned ignition for today, uh, September 10th. Um, uh, crews will remain on site to continue mop up of any of the hot spots uh, to secure the containment lines. The site behind me in the area above the hills and across much of the central Okanagan was quite dramatic Saturday evening as the plant ignition was underway. And those controlled burns are expected to continue, but it's all dependent on conditions. We assess the situation daily uh, and we will continue uh, mopping up and patrolling the fire, uh, bucketing operations and plant ignition when it's necessary and same to do so. And the above average temperatures are forecast to stay for at least the next week. BC Wildfire Service says billowing smoke can be concerning, but that's depending on where it's burning. If you are seeing fire burning well within the perimeter, so around black, 
um, trees that's already been burnt, that's typically not something of concern. But if you do start to see fire activity increase in pockets of green beyond that fire perimeter, um, it is still beneficial to send those reports in. Since April, there were a total of 192,185 hectares burned in the Kamloops Fire Center, compared to last year, with 24,566 hectares burned. Victoria Famia, Global News. And hundreds of overseas firefighters helping to put out our BC wildfires gave another special gift, this time to lift spirits. <laughs> 215 firefighters from South Africa performing a song on Saturday for BC wildfire service crews and staff members in the interior ahead of being deployed north to help suppression efforts in the Vanderhoof and Fort St. James area for the past couple of weeks. They have been helping to put out the Bush Creek East fire in the Shoe Swap and the McDougal Creek fire near West Kelowna. And Yvonne, we are just so blessed to have them and mm -hmm. blessed Thank for this you. weather too, hey? Yeah, actually, it's, uh, it's been okay along the south coast. We've got a bit of a blip in the forecast. Thank you so much, Krista, and good evening, everyone. I've got your back-to-work-and-school forecast in just a moment, but we have been seeing more cloud cover inching in across the day, and the potential's there to see a few isolated showers popping up, even overnight tonight. It's mainly cloudy at the airport. We're sitting at 22. Average for this time of the year sits at around 19 degrees, and there's that wave of moisture already working its way. It's been, across the, it's been spotty across the afternoon for most areas along the island, and that's where we're going to anticipate across the lower mainland overnight and for tomorrow morning. It is going to be moving out quite quickly with the clearing on the way, but there's that weather maker. Most areas along the north and central coast will be impacted with very windy conditions, 15 potentially up to 60 kilometers per hour, and some of those winds gusts along the water between 60 and up to 80 kilometers per hour, and that starts to ramp up through the morning and continuing in towards the afternoon. Some of the peak wind gusts that we have seen even along Powell River getting closer to 40 kilometers per hour, so it is still going to be quite breezy. We do still have the Smoky Skies Bulletin that is in effect. Areas into the Bulkley Valley and the lakes, the Okanagan Central Regions, as well as the Fraser Canyon. But we're hoping to see a bit of a shift in the winds tomorrow. And areas, especially in towards the Okanagan, will see those smoke, the smoke rather, push its way towards the east. So there should start to be a bit of a reprieve. However, we are still seeing the temperatures soaring once again. Very wet and windy along the north coast with those winds. Along the coast, gusts of up to 80 kilometers per hour. The heaviest rainfall will be along the north and central coast. A few spotty showers will pop up across the central interior. The Columbia will be included within that. Most areas for the Thompson Okanagan, we will continue to track that heat, but towards the end of the week and potentially leading in towards next weekend, we'll see that surge in temperatures once again and we could get closer to 30 degrees. Now, Whistler with highs up to 20, more of a break towards the afternoon along the island and the lower mainland. Showers for the morning hours, just a 30% chance, not much in terms of precipitation. A clearing through the day tomorrow. High away from the water will still be into the low 20s. We may hang on to a bit more cloud cover, especially in towards the Fraser Valley. We are going to see a few spotty showers and still seeing some cloud cover on Tuesday. Once we get past Tuesday, Wednesday onwards, plenty of sunshine in the mix even towards the end of the week with temperatures back up to 23. Krista? Love to see it. Thanks, Yvonne. Well, local dancers treated some transit commuters this weekend to a preview of Beyonce's highly anticipated concert tomorrow night in Vancouver. (laughs) 
A flash mob led by members of local dance company Aro Collective performed Saturday afternoon inside Waterfront Station to the music of the superstar. On Monday, Beyonce's Renaissance World Tour arrives at BC Place with thousands coming from across the province, country and world to catch the concert. And fans are encouraged to use transit to get to and from the venue. And Hello Fairies say they have added a late night sailing to help Vancouver Islanders return home after the concert. So, uh, I mean, good if they're able to <laughs> I didn't get my there. invitation. I thought I was supposed to be part of that, but yeah. I guess not. <laughs> I lost my, lost my number. Yeah. Uh, one team is for sure dancing today. Mm, yeah, it was a good day for Canada today. In uh, basketball, Canada won a bronze medal at the men's uh, FIBA championship. Great game with the Americans. We'll have highlights of that. And another medal in that tournament from a Canadian we didn't know about, a guy from B.C. We'll tell you that as well. And also at the U.S. Open, Canadians won in women's doubles. So anytime we can wave the red mm -hmm. and white flag, we will do it. We're doing a lot of that today. Lots of Canadian pride today. Mm -hmm. All right, thanks, Barry. Well, still ahead, the road to recovery for one pup named Fish. We'll check in on one starving Labrador retriever found in the shoe swap. How the dog is doing in the care of the B.C. SBCA. Today is the last day for re-entry flights to Yellowknife from Edmonton and Calgary. Global's Carolyn Curry de Castillo reports on one couple who started their journey home earlier this week. The highway leading up to Yellowknife has been a welcome sight for the thousands of residents who have been forced to leave their homes for three weeks. Just be able to relax and not worry about where I'm going to be in the next few days or if I have to move. Kelsey Worth and her husband and two kids have been living with family in High River since the fire forced them out. The worry level of our place at the very beginning, it was pretty high. We didn't know if we were going to be coming back to anything. On Thursday, they started the long drive from southern Alberta to Yellowknife, passing through communities near Hay River that were destroyed by fire. What I was really surprised to see was right by Alexandra Falls that that was all decimated. Oh my goodness, we were just here three weeks ago taking pictures with the of Alexandra Falls and now all the trees are gone. This isn't the first time Kelsey has been forced from her home because of a natural disaster. She was living in High River 10 years ago when the town was devastated by flooding. My parents' place, my, grand, my grandpa and a bunch of friends and us, we had to actually dig a moat around their house to save their house. I'm starting to think, you know, I can pretty well survive a lot of chaos. Kelsey sees a positive side to the double disasters she's lived through. She's been helping others navigate the paperwork and emotions that go with the trauma. I think I was able to calm a lot of people down. We're in a really crappy situation and we need to get through it, but we need to get through it together. On top of the fires and floods, it was a pandemic that caused Kelsey and her family to move to Yellowknife to find work after being laid off in Alberta. Yellowknife is home. I love it here. The nature, the people, there's a huge sense of community up here, a huge sense of helping each other. Sunday is the final day. Evacuees in Edmonton and Calgary can catch re-entry flights to Yellowknife. Hotel bookings in Edmonton, Leduc and Calgary that had previously been extended into next week will now end on Sunday. Evacuees from the South Slave region will continue to be accommodated. That area is still under an evacuation order. Carolyn Curry de Castillo, Global News. 
And some good news to share with you out of the shoe swap. A rescue dog named Fish, who was emaciated and starving, is now on the mend. Fish was found in a remote area near Enderby and brought to an emergency veterinarian. He needed IV to replenish his fluids and was put on a strict feeding schedule. The BCSBCA says he's greatly improved and is now gaining weight. Fish is a nine-year-old Labrador retriever with a strong will to live and will soon be ready for adoption. Oh. Well, still to come, Canada medals at the FIBA World Cup. The overtime finished by Canada's men's basketball team. Plus, Seahawks look for a win in their season home opener. Barry Sports is next. the second annual Stelu Powwow. All are welcome to attend the powwow and share in the experience of learning the important role tradition plays and how these traditions define Indigenous culture. Be there when rivals become teammates at the Labour Cup. Don't miss your chance to see six of the best men's tennis players from Europe take on six of their counterparts from the rest of the world over three days of intense team competition. Tickets at LaborCup.com. For Our BC, I'm Yvonne Shell. In partnership with Laver Cup, it's tennis like you've never seen it before. September 22nd through the 24th at Rogers Arena in Vancouver. Details at LaverCup.com. And Barry DeLay is in now with sports. Barry, what a wild game for Canada's men's team, hey? It was, that, it was early, early this morning. I got up for it. I know a lot of people <laughs> did. It was hard to sleep after that, I'll tell you. Thanks very much, Krista. Canada's men's basketball team made a big statement at the FIBA World Cup these last couple of weeks. Not only did they clinch a spot at the Summer Olympics in Paris next year, they made history by capturing Canada's first ever medal, a bronze today against the USA in another display of Canadian talent and grit coming together. It was a gripping finish as Canada needed overtime to knock off the mighty Americans. Now, the uh, USA lineup is without a lot of its heavy hitters, but still a talented young team gave Canada all they could handle. Much physical game, not the kind that we've seen against the Europeans. Canada's captain, Kelly Olenek of Kamloops, so savvy, lays it in, draws the foul. He had 11 points 34 25 Canada after one the Americans made a big run in the second but Dylan Brooks was on fire known for his defense but he hits the three there and then moments later another one five for five from three-point land 21 points for Brooks at the half Canada by two Canada had a nice third quarter as well it was Shea time Shea Gilgis Alexander just a maestro with the ball hesitation moves switches hands lays it in and he's as good as it gets with the mid-range jumper just creates his space gets to his stop a spot rather and pops Canada by nine after three but again the U.S. battled back Anthony Edwards also a mid-range genius pops the jumper two of his 24. Under two to go. Canada down one, but uh, Dylan Brooks does it again. Nails his seventh three. Canada leads by one. Now tied under 40 seconds to go. Who else but Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Ice in his veins. Canada had a four-point lead with just four seconds left. It looked in the bag. The USA at the free throw line made one, then needed to pull off an almost impossible play. They missed the free throw on purpose. They missed it, got it, and made the shot. I mean, that is one out of 100. It never works. But Mikhail Bridges, give him credit, made the shot. So Canada went from bronze in their pockets to overtime. Tied at 111, but they did steady themselves. The pros are so good at resetting, aren't they? And it's Gilgis Alexander with the move that left the Team USA defenders in a heap. It's a three-pointer that even gets a big smile from Shea. 31 points, 12 assists for him. 
They had a five-point lead, and then the dagger from R.J. Barrett rips home the three-pointer, and that seals it. Canada beats the U.S. 127-118 in overtime to win their first-ever World Cup medal in men's basketball. They're going to the Olympics next year as a medal contender, gold contender if Jamal Murray and Andrew Wiggins join up. What a great day for Canada, and it was Dylan Brooks and his 39 points that led the way. It was amazing. Uh, you know, we knew that, you know, we wanted to come out here and, you know, finish strong, you know, as a team, as a country, and, you know, put smiles on our country's face, and I feel like we did that today. First ever medal for Canadian basketball. How huge is that? How huge can it be for the future? It's amazing. It's a lot for the future. Um, you know, Canadian basketball is on the rise. It's always been on the rise for years, for years now, and, you know, um, you know, we really wanted to, you know, make history, because we kept making history throughout in Jakarta. Shout out to, you know, Indonesia and coming here and making history as well in uh, the Philippines and Manila. So it's an amazing feeling and, you know, you cherish it for the rest of your life. Now, the gold medal game featured Serbia taking on Germany. Germany is coached by Penticton's Gordy Herbert. He was born and raised in Penticton, spent the bulk of his coaching career in Europe. The last 20 in the German leagues became their head coach just a couple of years ago. Germany upset the Americans in the semis, and they never lost a perfect 8-0. Dennis Schroeder, now a Toronto Raptor, scored a game-high 28, and the Germans win it 83-77 for their first-ever gold. Gordy Herbert just missed out an Olympic medal as a player for Canada at the 84 Summer Olympics. Today, he wins gold with Germany, and we couldn't be happier for him. The Seahawks were a pleasant surprise last year. Geno Smith went from career backup to pro bowler, and Seattle made the playoffs after a 9-8 season. They had another strong draft this past spring, and the feeling in Seattle is they can do even better this year as long as Geno proves he's not a one-hit wonder. Seahawks played their season opener today at home to the L.A. Rams. Geno, 30 touchdown passes, over 4,200 yards last year in 2022. Very impressive. Looked pretty good in the opening drive. Connects with DK Metcalf for the 28-yard gain. Led to a field goal, and the Hawks were on the board up 3-0. The Rams did go ahead, but Seattle regains the lead, and it's Geno Smith with his first touchdown pass of the season. Finds Metcalf again, 10-yard touchdown, 10-7 Seattle, and they were up 13-7 at the half. But the second half was all Rams. They had a long, impressive drive in the third quarter. Kyron Williams from seven yards out just gets in for the touchdown, his second of the game, 14-13 L.A. They had these long plays that ate up the clock and really tired out the Seattle defense, and they had a lot of third-down conversions as well. Matthew Stafford, a 21-yard completion here to... Uh, help them get another touchdown and take an even bigger lead, 27-13. Meanwhile, Seattle's offense just stopped in the second half. Smith is sacked there on the next play, goes down against. The Seahawks had three yards of net offense in the second half. It was offensive. Seattle also took some dumb penalties as the Rams punched the Seahawks in the mouth. They dominate Seattle in the season opener 30-13. Seahawks' biggest NFC West rival, the 49ers, opening on the road in Pittsburgh. Brock Purdy at quarterback. He was so impressive coming in at the end of last year, and he looked great again today. Two touchdown passes, both to Brandon Ayuk. Makes a fantastic catch there to keep his feet in bounds. 17-0, and the Niners also dominated on the ground. They had 188 yards rushing, 152 of them from their great running back, Christian McCaffrey. This one from the 65-yard gallop for the touchdown as the 49ers roll past the Steelers 30-7. to 
Tennis now, U.S. Open Women's Doubles Final. Canada's Gabby Dabrowski and her partner Aaron Routliff, who was born in New Zealand but was raised in Ontario and lives in Montreal. So she's basically Canadian too. They've only played five tournaments together, but they have great chemistry. They won the first set, and then in the second, look at that great smash by Dabrowski. That gave them a five games to three lead. And now to match point, and Dabrowski again with a great return here to put the pressure on their opponents. And this one is wide, and that's it. Canada with Dabrowski and uh, Routliff, our mixed doubles champions. Dabrowski had won two majors in mixed doubles. This is her first women's title, also the first for Routliff, and they're just getting started, so great stuff for them. Men's final, Novak Djokovic going for a record 24th Grand Slam title. Daniel Medvedev coming off the upset win over Carlos Alcaraz, won this title in 2021. He actually beat Djokovic in straight sets that year, but the Joker was in no laughing mood today. Won the first set 6-3 and then came through during the the big moments as he's done well pretty much his entire career. Look at uh, this epic point here that Djokovic eventually wins. They played a second set that lasted an hour and 44 minutes. Djokovic won it in a tie break and then in the third set Djokovic had his service broken but broke right back, broke Medvedev's spirit with it. Tremendous winner down the line and Novak Djokovic makes history his 24th Grand Slam title, the most of any man. He ties Margaret Court's all-time record of 24 as well. He won three of the Grand uh, Slam, four Grand Slams this year, runner-up in the other one, and he's 36 years old, and he's not slowing down. Baseball today, Blue Jays against the last-place Royals, but they could not solve KC rookie lefty Cole Reagans until the sixth. The kid was sailing when he caught his cleat on this delivery. Airmails one to the backstop. Fine, he said he was okay. Next pitch, though, he does it again. And this time a run scores from third, and the Jays are down 2-1. And would you believe on the very next pitch, Reagans does it one more time. This one's even worse. Davis Schneider races home. Two walks and three wild pitches later. It's tied at two. Reagans got pulled and just couldn't figure it out after that first slip. And then in the seventh, Kevin Kiermeyer with a solo homer, and the Jays take care of business. They sweep the lowly Royals 5-2. They jump past Seattle in the wild card by one game. They're one and a half up on Texas, and they open a four-game series against the Rangers tomorrow in Toronto. And the Man Cup Lacrosse Championship, game two from Queen's Park last night. Six nations out of Ontario won the opener Friday. It was another tight game, tied at nine, ten minutes to go. Anthony Malcolm scooping at home for the bellies. Queen's Park was rocking, and then Jeff Cornwall is going to go for a solo run and finish there. We're tied at 11, and the joint was jumping, but the Chiefs, Ah, they spoil the party. Just over a minute to go. Shane Jackson bagging the game winner. That's a talented team, Six Nations. They add an empty netter and win at 13-11. So the bellies are down 2-0 in the series. Games 3 and 4 go Monday and Tuesday at Queen's Park. They have the day off today. That's it for sports. Wow, there's so much Canadian winners. Lots going on. on. Yes, stage. it was nice to see. Yeah, that was mm -hmm. great. Thanks, Barry. All right, well, still ahead, we feature a pair of BC filmmakers who reflect on their humble starts including a film about the Fraser River. That's nice. This is BC is brought to you by Johnston Meyer Insurance Agencies Group. 50 years of trust in your community. Most in the film industry have humble beginnings when they learn their craft. And that's evident for a pair of BC filmmakers in their recently released National Film Board production called Family Down the Fraser. Here's Jada Rant and this is BC. It was the first one. Ah! Ah! Woo! 
The year is 1978. 45 years ago this month, Richard and Rochelle Wright kept their two kids out of the classroom for a bit for a film shoot and history lesson as they journeyed down the Fraser River. We talked to a couple of their teachers and said, they'd, hey, they're going to learn way more on this trip than they are being in school. It's near the headwaters of the Fraser River, which winds about 1,200 kilometers down to uh, Georgia Strait. Right, a budding filmmaker at the time was getting his own education on producing and storytelling along the way. Getting much gold today? I learned that teamwork was necessary. I think there were six of us on that film. And the gold stops in the blanket. This is the most recent... Award-winning director of photography David Geddes was just breaking into the business, thrilled to be getting paid for a few weeks of work. I had just recently asked my mother to put her house up for collateral so I could buy a 16-millimeter camera. Oh, everybody, listen up, please. He would get his big break on 21 Jump Street at exactly the same time as a young Johnny Depp. Parallel careers, right? Parallel careers, sure. His rocket was a little bigger than mine. <laughs> Now nearing a half century of film work, the trip down BC's iconic river still stands as an unforgettable experience for Wright, for the most part. We all joke about the lines that we don't like or wish we had never said. Raven, what kind of bird do you think that is over there? I don't know. You didn't know what the next day had in store for you, or you didn't know what was around the next bend. Hang on, Rich. Never mind some of the disagreements we had or whatever. It was a pretty good trip, and, and we all came out of it as, as friends. Jay Durant, Global News. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC that people need to know about, email your ideas to thisisbc at globalnews. All right, that was a great story. I enjoyed the, uh, the, the pan flute music in the background, <laughs> the kind of a sign of the times. Yeah. When you're, down, when you're down, uh, going down the river, I think that's the music. It's very, it's very soothing, yeah, it's right? Yeah, very soothing. Yeah. Soothing. <laughs> Put on yeah. the water as Put well. on the playlist, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Add that to the list. Oh, yeah. just see. All right, well, how is it looking this weekend? So or a bit of the work week, right? Back to school. If you're planning tomorrow morning, it'll just be a chance for some showers for the morning hours, a nice clearing as we get in through the afternoon. Tuesday, isolated showers are possible. And then once we get Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, sunny and warm. Thursday and Friday, mark that on your calendar. You bet. Thanks so much. Have a good night.